0: Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. There's people who are living in a city called Colossi, which is a city very similar to modern day Cape Town very similar in terms of its religious ideas and notions and what is going around them and actually because that city was a melting pot of opinions uh, temptations and ideas and thoughts with the Greek philosophy and Roman mythology and Judaistic uh, religion uh, religious uh, thought process and uh, and it's something where the people would be able to as uh, just in any um, ancient society. They found their identity, their influence, their power, their status, their affirmation, all came from the way they related to these different religious thoughts or these gods that they worshipped. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, Gabe, that sounds so quaint for them. In AD 62, that sounds not very similar to us here. We are more, far more enlightened these days. And I, I'd say maybe, maybe maybe a little bit, but, but actually... I would also argue that maybe we get the same sort of things, the same sense of identity, influence, power, status, uh, uh, wealth, and affirmation come from different gods. Maybe they're not called Zeus and Athena, but gods called salaries and sex and social media and man's opinion. That I think very quickly we can discount what those things where we find our joy and our identity from. Those are the places that we find our hearts going to worship. But actually Paul in this letter is fighting for our hearts. And he's fighting for our hearts and the freedom and the the, the fullness of what God has got for us by saying actually there is only one supreme being. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's supreme over all creation, all authority. And he demands to be worshipped. He's not just another God, another option on the buffet line of gods that you can select and pick and choose for a while but actually he wants to be supreme in our life. But then Paul goes on he says this, this God, this Lord of Lords, this King of all kings, this omnipotent, omniscient being, he, does, he says something so profound. He says this amazing King wants to interact with us. And it's so, so, so powerful and I want to help us this morning as we press on with the text and see the beauty, the mystery, the power of this. So we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 24 to 29. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you can do that. Or if not, it'll be behind me on the screen. But this is what it says. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. But now it has been revealed In God's people. For God wants them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, Gentiles, too. And this is the secret Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we come together in this, in, this, in this setting where we worship you, where we open our hearts afresh to you, I thank you, Jesus, in this room right now, would all lesser pursuits, pleasures, and problems bow their knee to the perfection, preeminence, and power of Jesus. And now with all authority, I ask you to show us your glory. Do this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is a profound text that's got me so excited, that's got me bubbling with joy this week, even though I've been battling the flu, uh, and man flu is tough. I tell you guys, being 39 weeks of pregnant, nothing compared to man flu, I tell you. Just a joke, Fiona, just a joke. Yeah, she's smiling. She's smiling. It's all good. We can move on. But I've been so full of joy despite this, because actually, as I look at this text, I see Paul is giving us the mystery uh, that he's unpacking the secret. He says uh, to true strength and power. He's saying the mystery, the secret that angels long to look into. The mystery that was he- kept hidden for a generation has now been revealed to us. And he says, I want to tell you this, and I want to help us this morning that if we get this mystery, this secret, this understanding of the gospel, I promise you, our lives will be irrevocably never the same. Will be never and ever ever the same again. And I want to help us this morning. So the one verse I want to zo- zoom zoom zone zone in on this morning is found in there, verse 27. It says this will be on the screen behind me. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, now this is the secret: Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can we say that verse together? One, two, three. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, one more time, but we're gonna personalize it now. Say, Christ in me, the hope of glory. One, two, three, So this morning, strap yourselves in. I believe this, this will be, I pray this will revolutionize your walk with Jesus. Three things that this verse is giving to us, is suggesting that there's giving to us in the gospel. Number one, it says this, we're given a new access. We're given a new access. You see, when I read this, this is Paul making a scandalous claim. Now, him saying that Christ in you, it's not something that's trite and just that's good for a bumper sticker for Christians on the back of a coffee cup, Christ in you. This is a scandalous claim. Because you see, into that culture, the the people, everything they got, their whole worth, their identity was from the worshiping the gods who were not close, who were far off. That to appeal to them to come close. So for that culture, there was it was a real thing to appeal to Aphrodite, who's the god of sex and relationships and fertility, the the ancient equivalent of Tinder, probably. Anyway, that's an aside. But they, for, for success in that, they had to go to Aphrodite and hope that she was in a good mood and, and appeal to her for success in that way. If you need a, a success in agriculture, Ares was the God that you went to. And maybe that seems strange, but, but even the Jewish idea that was converging upon the city was of a God who could only be approached by the overly zealous and the overly holy. And this, is, this idea was that God was far removed from them and the people had to approach them, whether, whether it was one God or multiple gods, had to approach them with caution and nervousness. And Paul's making a scandalous claim that should shock us, something that's so countercultural, so something that's almost revolutionary. He says, God wants to live in you. Now, just think about that for a second. I think we, in our Western culture, we are so blase. We've been duped into this type of religious notion that says, you know, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart, just slip your hand up. No one's looking. Just slip it down. Cool. Amen. Wonderful. Jesus into my heart. It almost seems like it's kindergarten stuff. Think about it for a second. God wants to live in you. The things that the angels go, no way. The thing that demonic principalities and power says we don't understand, Paul says this is the secret, the mystery of all ages. God wants in on you. This should blow our minds here. You see, and I've done this before, but I think we have to lay these foundations. The Old Testament pattern was of a God who was only relating to his people in a certain way because he was holy and the people were sinful, and they were unrepentant. They had to they had put systems in place. Their hearts, he said, was, were stiff, and they had stiff necks, and the people's hearts would always be hard towards God. So they had to put systems in place to engage with them. And in the Old Testament, this way is the glory of God would come and make it manifest. It would come down and then would leave. It happened in the book of Exodus. You see the cloud by day and then the fire by night and they'll follow that. And, and when the cloud would lift or disappear, they'll stop, and they'll wait for it to come again, and they'll settle, and they'll follow that. That's their relationship with the presence of God. And in the end of the book of Exodus, he gives them understanding of how to build the tabernacle, something which they could be able to set up in their camp, a bit more, te- a bit more permanent, still temporary, but a bit more permanent where they could build their society around the tabernacle, which would have the, the Ark of the Covenant and the place where God would dwell. But no one was, not just anybody could come to, close to God. You, you put yourself around Him, but only Moses would be able to come close to God. And, and when Moses would go, the people would stand and they would watch from the outside of the tents. And they would watch and watch. And then it says the presence of God like a cloud would come thick on the place. And I've said this before, but we have to understand this. That that word when it talks about the glory of God that would come and then would lift is the word Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory. Now you might have seen that on the back of a taxi or a type of uh, some ministry somewhere, but that word Shekinah is is actually understanding, it's the word meaning that God is a visitor, the visiting glory of God. That word Shekinah, the essence of it is the visiting glory of God would come and then would lift. It's something that's so profound, but when we understand what Jesus did in the New Testament, the New Covenants, we read in John chapter 1 verse 14, it'll be on the screen behind me, it says this, so the Word became flesh, talking about Jesus, it says the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his home, other words, it could be used there, synonyms and other texts, other translations, they made his home, dwelt or tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus was coming and saying, actually, that tabernacle system of you coming and waiting, only the really religious and zeders can come close, and I'll visit, and then I'll leave. That system is dying a death because I have come to be the true tabernacle. And my tabernacle is not going to perish. It's going to come and live with inside of you because it says this, and it talks about the glory. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And that understanding of Jesus coming and moving into our neighborhood, Jesus moving and taking up residence, is that word Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not just for Christmas time. God with us, Emmanuel, has this understanding that God is my resident. Shekinah is God is my neighbor that visits in the new covenant, Jesus says, I am called Emmanuel, and my glory is that I come and live inside of you. Now, this is so massive, because for, for us, this is a huge understanding. When Jesus makes promises, they don't are not just light and fluffy greeting cards for hallmark Christian cards. But when he says this, these are full of the, the, the power of God in them. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I'll be with you even to the very end. And as I read these th- statements, I keep asking myself the question... Sir, ma'am, are we settling for visitation rights Christianity? Are we settling for visitation rights? You know, in, in our society, when a family get divorced or separated, the parents will come to an agreement. You can have the kid for those two weeks, and I'll have him every second weekend. And what, 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 no, no comment on that arrangement, but I want to just tell you, the understanding is I think we transpose that onto a relationship with God. We say, actually, I'm going to I need to go to church to meet with God. I need to go to a meeting. I need to, go, I, I'm in a, I need to go to a special place or a special moment. I've got to get myself into a special understanding to meet with God. When actually, that is not what the New Testament describes our relationship with God to be. We have this understanding that we can only come close on a Sunday, only when we feel we've behaved in a respectable way. Even these phrases, I feel God's distant. He's not distant, He's promised us He'll never leave us. He is not distant. He's not playing hard to get. He's not playing long-distance relationships because this relationship is not based on emotions or feelings or behavior or even on circumstances. The old covenant says make promises to God. The new covenant says he made promises to you. And he is not a liar. He's not a man that he should lie. He is faithful even when you're faithless that he says, I will never leave you. This is amazing truth. And this is an incredible thing that Paul is telling us. The scandalous claim is he's saying, actually, this understanding of God is so countercultural because it's not an appeal for you to move closer to God. It's an appeal saying God moves closer to you. So this new access starts to bubble. Secondly, we're going somewhere this morning. As it says, he gives us a new authority. (laughs) Not only do we have direct access to the, the divine, but we also have full delegated authority from him. Let me explain. So, the tabernacle system, as, as the people became more permanent in Jerusalem, they built the temple, and the temple became the place of worship, and they they moved the, 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 the things, the emblems of worship in the tabernacle into the temple, and it became more ritualistic and formulaic and understandable for the people. But the same sort of principle applied. But there was this moment called the Day of Atonement. Once a year, around the time where we celebrate uh, Good Friday, Passover, uh, what would happen once a year, the people would come and they would gather in the temple and the high priest would facilitate this moment where the people would bring in two goats. Now the first goat would come to the high priest at the front and the, the first goat had to be inspected, had to be uh, w- without defect, without fault, had to be the spotless lamb. And what they would do then is they would slaughter that lamb and then take that blood, and the high priest alone would walk into the Holy of Holies, which if, you are, if you're aware of Jewish uh, typography and uh, topography, sorry, geography, uh, is, is actually the, the Holy of Holies, the situation that faced west. So he would walk into the Holy of Holies with the blood, and he would put it on the, the Ark of the Covenant and wait for God's approval for the sacrifice of sins. And that first, la- that first lamb, that first goat, was sacrificed for the sins of the last year. The second goat would be brought in. And that second goat wouldn't be slaughtered, but they would do something first. They would take a, um, he would lay his hand, the high priest would lay his hands on that goat and would pray the sins of the people's future sins the next year onto that goat. And then he will take a scarlet uh, a thread that was white and they will dip it into the blood of the first one. It would become scarlet and it tie it around his neck. And then what they'll do is they'll get somebody who would walk that goat out the back gate, which is facing east, which is a phenomenal understanding. The past sins for the past year and the future sins going out that way and the forgiveness going as far as the west is from the east. That one's just for free. But anyway, as they walk that goat out, what they'll do is they'll walk out the entrance of the temple with that goat with the thread around with the blood dripping. Off it on out that thing with the sins of the, of the people upon that goat They walk through that thing out the gate goes into the Mount of Olives. So I can imagine this is happening every year, this is, it happens every year at the Day of Atonement. So when Jesus is about to be crucified, this is probably the thing that's happening at the same time. Just amazing that this is not something outside of that realm. But that, that lamb goes over that mountain and into the wilderness, which is this desolate place. And that, that animal would be driven into the wilderness. But the incredible thing was that na- animal had to die of natural causes. So what would happen? Somebody would have to watch that animal and make sure that animal would die. So somebody would take their time and watch it and, and another wild animal would probably eat it or would fall into a ravine and die. But the reason why was because when that animal had died, that man would then have to, have to go take the thread that had been tied around his neck and take it back to the high priest. Now something phenomenal that would happen in the Jewish tradition that every year in and year out, when that thread would come back, that scarlet thread after that act- action had taken place, that scarlet thread would turn white. And for a Jewish people, that would symbolize that now the high priest had that sacrifice had been accepted by God, and now he could for, the high priest had authority to forgive the sins of the people. And they'd walk out, oh, clean conscious. What is phenomenal? If you're reading, as one does on, on the odd occasion, the Talmud, which is the extra-rabbinical writings of the Jewish people, the Talmud has this, this note in it that says actually 40 years, plus minus 40 years before the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So 40 years before was around about where Jesus died. It says 40 years before something radical stopped happening, that scarlet thread stopped turning white. And if you go Google it, you can do that if you want, because that's where all verification happens. Um, but the, the, the rabbis, to this day, they argue, was it environmental factors? What happened? What changed this understand with that red thing? To this day, it has not changed white again. I would, he- I would be quick to mention that actually I believe that that thing, not by coincidence, stopped turning white. Why? Because on the day that Jesus died, from that moment, the Father says, no other sacrifice will be enough except the blood of my Son. And this is powerful. And why this gives us authority is because the Bible calls Jesus our high priest. And we have a high priest now who says that though your skin sins were scarlet, I have washed you white as snow. Not on a thread, but with that he's washed your insides. Not just something that's temporary, that's once a year, but eternally he has washed your insides white as snow. This is the authority that we are given. (coughs) Let's keep going. We're reading obscure passages this morning and talking about obscure things. So Numbers 5 verse 2 something amazing. It's on the screen behind me. It says this. Maybe you've come across this beautiful, this will be your devotional for the day. You can just hold on to the scripture. It says this, remove from the camp anyone who has leprosy, a discharge, or has become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person. Remove them so they'll not defile the camp in which I live among them. Great word, eh? Wow. Just receive it. Receive it right now. Let that do a work in your heart. A text, this text is, this is God's giving instructions for His people and how they to operate with him, how they are to walk with in authority, with courage, in relation with them. He says, actually, if somebody has leprosy or a skin disease, they need to be put out the camp. If somebody is in a time, a woman is the time of their month or got a blood discharge, put them out of the camp. If somebody has touched an un, a dead body, put them out the camp. You know what? This scripture is profound when we look at a man named Jesus Christ, because can I tell you the first three miracles that Jesus does? If you followed from the Sermon of the Mount, he walks on there, and the first miracle he does is a, le- a man with leprosy comes to him. And in those days, if you touch a leper, get out, get out. But Jesus goes and touches him and heals him. The very next miracle that he does is he's walking towards a man named Jairus. He says, please come, my daughter's unwell. And as he's walking there, it's not by a coincidence, not by chance, but a woman with an issue of blood who's been bleeding for 12 years, not just one day, not just for a month, but for 12 years, presses the crowd and touches him. In that society, if you get touched by that woman, you're unclean. But in this society, Jesus, in this moment, Jesus says, actually, I am greater than the curse. And actually that woman gets healed. The third thing that he does, third miracle that he does, is he leaves that woman, he walks into a girl's room who's just died called Jairus' daughter. All the people he puts them out, and Jesus goes, and he doesn't just call from the window, get up. He goes and touches the girl and says, Talitha, call This is Jesus, the fulfillment of the curse. Every curse is broken in Jesus. Jesus is not accident. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, and I want to say in the, with courage in my heart, there is no curse, no demon, no principality, no culture, no condition that has more authority than Christ in you. There is no curse. Let me say this. Maybe you're laboring under this false ideology that actually you have been cursed or that there's a family generational curse on you or something that's been going wrong. Can I tell you, sir, ma'am, every curse bows its knee to the power of Jesus. There is no curse that's greater than his name, than his blood, and we have authority. And this is huge because actually it's not just a sense of encouragement in you that gives us hope. Many of us live with this thing. I'm, I went to church and I got encouraged today. Now I've got courage for this week. You know, it just pepped me up and that's good. But actually off by Wednesday you're going, oh, I'm just feeling flat. I don't know if I can make it through this week. And you're like low and you're feeling hit by the circumstances of life and you're trying to make it through. And I just need some encouragement from somebody, from something. Well, actually here's what the scripture says. It doesn't say a sense of encouragement fills you. It says Christ in you. Now, why is this this huge? Because it's not just encouragement that's in you. It's the resurrected King who has broken down every door, every barrier, every hindrance to hand back the keys of authority to you and I. Sir, ma'am, you can face and embrace any situation that man has declared impossible, unqualified, or not good enough. You can face and embrace any situation because actually Christ in you. The hope of glory. You've got new access and new authority. And finally this morning, you've got new assurance. (coughs) See, as I read this text, it says Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're American, the hope. It doesn't say Christ in you, a hope, an option of hope. He has an option. He has, why do you give it a try? He says the hope. Paul is categorically stating there is no other hope apart from this. There is no, nothing that will hold your soul apart from this hope, Christ in you, the hope, the one and only hope. You see, what happens is uh, we've got this frivolous understanding of hope and this frivolous light and fluffy, uh, hopefully, this hopeful, wishful thinking idea of hope that fuels our lotto system every week because people are hoping that this will be our way to escape. And they pay their money, and they hope, and when, when it doesn't, when the numbers don't come their way, no one's having a big tantrum, no one's falling apart. Why? Because, you know, we actually knew that we had a one in a million chance, so it wasn't actually that big a deal. People think that's what hope is, but Paul's not using that word here. He's using a different words. He says, I'm giving you the hope. I want to tell you what the hope is. And hope means a confident expectation of good. The ESV translation uses the word synonymously, see if hope says confidence or assurance, Christ in you, the hope, the confidence, the assurance. Now, I, I love those words because I believe too many Christians spend their time playing uh, some version of a spiritual hokey pokey. I'm in and I'm out. Turn it all about. Like, he loves me, he loves me not type of reality. And we spend all our times of saying, uh, as he pleads with me, am I in or am I out? And actually, the, the wonderful truth of Scripture, Romans 10 verse 11 says this. Though, let this flood your heart with hope this morning. Those who trust in him will never be put to shame. A better rendition says, those who trust in him will never lose hope. Okay, let's read another scripture. John 10, verse 27 to 30. It'll be on the screen behind me. Jesus speaking says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Can you say Never. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, why I said that and highlighted that word never is because in the original language, that word never is a double negative. Oh, may. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Oh, may. It's a double negative. So if you want to read it the way the emphasis that Jesus is placing, if Jesus is saying this, the way he's saying this, he goes, never. He's emphasizing, he's putting bold, he's italicizing it, he's underlining it. A better way to read it in our modern lingo would be, those who trust in me, they shall never perish. They shall never, ever, ever, certainly not, not at all, by no means, never, ever perish. That's the emphasis that's being placed on the word. You see, this is so huge, and we say these things again and again, but I think our souls forget. I want to tell you, Ephesians 1 tells me that he chose me. He chose you, not the other way around, not you chose him. You didn't find him as if you can then lose him, Uh, find, lost, in, out. I want the scriptures tell us that the moment you put your faith in Christ Jesus, because it's actually not our faith, it's actually his faith, Christ's faith on our behalf. That's the beauty and the mystery of this thing. And the amazing thing is this moment says that from that moment in the heavenlies, God writes down your name in the Lamb's book of life. And I want to tell you, there is no divine typics. He's not, he's not schizophrenic. He's not going, ah, Holy Spirit, get the typics. They've done it again. <laughs> oh, wait, they went to church. Okay. How do you spell? Double L. Oh, cool. No, 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 he's not doing that. He's inscribed it. The Bible tells us our names are inscribed in the palm of his hand. This is how committed he is to his people. In the Bible, Ephesians 1 says he chose you, and it goes on, before the creation of the world. That should fuel our hearts before the sin that marred you, before your addiction, before your divorce, before your betrayal, before your anxiety, before your mess ups. He chose you before you were born. This is not some accidental thing he stumbled on or something that you say, I think I'm going to go through a religious phase now. No, he chose you and ripped you out of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of his son. This is the truth of the gospel and something that I love, that I love, and we've emphasized it here often, and I pray it will take root in our hearts. It says, he chose us before the creation of the world according to his pleasure. Wow. Wow. We don't serve a God who's reluctant, a God who needs his arm twisted, a God who's going with his arms folded saying, come on, show show me why I should show you favor. We've got a God who chose us before the creation of the world according to his pleasure, according to his delight, with such joy in his heart. We have to understand this because Hebrews 10 verse 22 compels us and says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Too many Christians aren't uh, enjoying the access and authority they have from God because they're still living in a place where they're not sure that that they're His. But the Bible says if we want to approach, draw near to God, we have to come with a true heart has full assurance and faith. So I want to tell you that when Paul says Christ in you, the hope of glory, he's saying Christ in you, the, the access, the authority, and the assurance. But what's the purpose of all this? Well, let's read. It says Christ in you, the access, the authority, the assurance of glory. Now, that word glory <coughs> does mean, yes, in one sense, future glory, meaning that we have this confidence that, that if we die in this moment, that we, because of Christ, we'll be present with Him. That on the, on the other side, of when our eyes darken to this side of, of, of life and the light on that side of eternity, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I've got full confidence of that glory, that that day when I'll see Him face to face and my faith will be made sight and I'll join in with the throngs of angels and say, it's Him, it's Him. And my soul will delight in Him. Yes, I've got that, that security in my heart. But actually, the, what Paul is doing here is he's actually not even talking about that glory. You see, the whole purpose of the book of Colossians is Paul is attacking something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea that our spirituality was outside of us and actually didn't affect the reality of who we are here and now. Gnosticism puts an emphasis on extra spiritual activities and spiritual experiences. Your fasts, the way you, you live and the, w- the way you see your life. Do you experience angels? Do you see visions? Gnosticism puts this, this ethereal uh, glory that's out there, intangible, but has no effect on your real life. But Paul is attacking that, that, that wrong thinking. And the way he, he does that is he by uses the word right here. He uses the word glory. I've said it again and again, but we have to note the word for glory is the Aramaic word, Kavod, or kavod, however you would like to pronounce it. The choice is yours. Kavod. Now, what does that word mean? We said it again and again, but the word kavod, Christ in me, the access, the authority, the assurance of glory of kavod, means weight, heaviness, fullness, or strength. So I don't know what about, you've ever thought, you know, Glory is, this, the, when we use, if we did a straw poll, tell me what the, what is the meaning of glory it would have these different ideas and what people's experiences and this, wow, the bright shining lights and the, this experience, this feeling. And, and, and none of that's, I'm not taking those off the table, but I'm saying what Paul is writing here is he's saying, Christ in you, the access, the, the authority, the assurance of strength. Now suddenly, all of a sudden, this, this verse becomes not just some ethereal out there for some mystical believer, this becomes very real for me. I don't know about you, but the prayer I pray the most is, God, please give me strength. And God's saying, I have, in full measure, more than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. And you see, as we read the story, I've said it last week, but AD 62, Paul writes this letter. A year later, AD 63, Nero unleashes the seas of the day, unleashes this persecution across the church that we've never seen before or since. as as the might of Rome starts to crush out all these little groups of Christianity that was popping up and saying, actually anyone who says that anyone besides Caesar's Lord is going to be crushed and he's going to make make a spectacle of them by setting them alight and lighting their garden parties with them, coating them in tar and setting them alight so that that Christians, as they scream, would be the haunting ambiance music for their dinner parties. That Christians would become punchlines to jokes, stripped of possessions and away from families, filling arenas and coliseums. So AD 63, persecution breaks out, and people are stripped away from families at best, put to death at worst. But (coughs) AD 64, a year later, an earthquake happens in in the area of Colossae, and their city is destroyed to rubble. The city of Colossae from AD 64, two years later than this letter, is destroyed and never seen again. Still today, archaeologists haven't been able to resurrect the, 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 the ruins of that city. And in AD 70, just six years later, they would have heard these Christians who had been probably stripped from their family, their possessions, had loved ones killed, awaiting judgment, some of them lurking in prison cells and holding on to what little strength they've got. They're hearing their home in Colossae has been destroyed by earthquake. And then six years later, in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed and ravaged by Romans. I can imagine these people in that moment going, the temple gone, our city gone, our family has gone. But Christ in me, the access, the authority, the assurance of strength. This thing becomes so much more real and tangible and on the ground when we understand that actually our hope is not in a place of worship. Our hope is not in a city of origin. Our hope is not in a government that will provide. Our hope is in none of these other means. But our hope and our strength for every day is Christ in you. Now this becomes very real where there's a girl in our community who this week, the last couple of weeks, her mom is on death's door. Now, that alone is a journey of much trauma and pain, I can imagine. She's navigating those emotions where her mom, who's very young and, and shouldn't be, pro- it's, it's, it's unnatural, this, the process of this death, and she's trying to work out this journey. Those emotions alone are raw. Put on top of that, she's got doctors there who she's trying to apply faith to the story and see how to navigate this. Doctors are saying, actually, not the condition of life, even if she pulls through, won't be great. Why we suggest you pull the plug? And she's trying to work out the science, reason, and understanding her own emotions and the spiritual implications of this. So there's the emotional reality. They've got her own heart there. And on top of that, she's got relatives who do not know Christ. And they actually have coming and they are coming to this moment with their with their system of belief. And they bring they've brought a witch doctor to come and do ancestral worship and, and moments over the body to see to try and fight for breakthrough and she's trying to process all this 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 anxiety about this how do I engage with the family on this because I don't I don't approve of this and, and and what about the doctors and what do I say to them and what do I do with my own emotions and as I've been talking and praying with her I said and how are you doing one day she said to me you know with all these things going on because I'm like I don't know how you process all that I said, she says I, with all this going on I've got a strength that I never knew I had I want to tell you that's not a strength from some fortitude, some stiff upper lip. Not a strength of you can do it. This is a strength that I believe it comes from divine access, divine authority, and divine assurance, knowing that Christ is in me, the hope of glory. There's no other power, no authority, no demon, no angel, nothing in the heavens on earth above, and the heavens above and the earth below that can separate me from the love of Christ. That Christ is in me, the hope of strength. Let me say this morning as we land. This thing falls, lives and dies on this reality. Are we, and this is a question I ask myself, are we a people who profess faith, or are we people who possess faith? I believe there's a key danger, a key difference, because I believe the danger of the Western church is we have a church often full of people who profess stuff, and we know what to confess, and Christ in me, the hope of glory, but it lacks any power because we're not possessing it. I want to to you today, I'm not telling you just a new creed to say over your lives. I'm telling you about a person who wants to change the very DNA of who you are. The way you walk, the way you respond, the way you live your life is Christ in you, the hope of strength. You here today, and you're saying, I- I'm in a situation, I'm facing situations, I'm facing journeys that I never thought I would, I'm facing pain, I'm facing uh, questions, I'm facing anxieties that I need his strength for. Not a superficial strength, not a strength that's light and fluffy, but a strength that goes deep in my heart that holds me. I'm wanting you to respond to allow the deposit, the full reality of this revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the access, the authority, the assurance of glory to settle in your heart. Can you lift your hands with me if that's you? Like lifting my hands, well, why we lift our hands is us saying, actually, uh, sometimes I want to just say the biggest hindrance to our accessing these divine promises and realities of God is pride. Pride. Because we say, actually, I'm going to still be Lord of my life. I'm still, yeah, yeah, I intellectually get that, but I'm not going to submit. But Father, right now, as we lay down our pride, we say, Jesus, would your strength flood our beings? I thank you, Father God, for the church that meets at Seamount Primary School. I thank you for this church, your people. This are your people, your sons and daughters. And right now, you're whispering in our hearts. I want to tell you the mystery, the secret of ages long hidden that's now been revealed to you not based on behavior, not based on your emotions, not based on your circumstances, but based on a king who has gone before you and bashed down every door, who holds up the scarlet thread and say, behold, I have made all things new. I have washed you as white as snow. I thank you, Jesus. Would your words of life take hold of our hearts like never before? And would we have this deposit knowing that Christ is in us, the hope, the assurance of strength? I thank you, Father God. Would you do this by your spirit? Would you transform every single one of our hearts right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.